If I were to ask you, and I thought about bringing the children up front and asking them, if I were to ask you whether or not you're a sinner, I think probably if you're here today, you would answer, yeah, I'm a sinner. And if I were to ask you what sins you commit or what sins you've committed this last week, I imagine that some of you would be able to come up with some sins, but that most of them would be the sins of the little white lie variety. You know, they'd be safe sins that you're willing to talk to people about. It would be things like, well, I admit that I jumped the gun on a four-way stop sign and cut somebody off last week. Or I admit that I beat my horn on the roundabout because there was this little old lady in front of me who didn't know that yield is not stop. Maybe mothers would say, well, I was irritable with my children. And we could all come up with our little sins, our little white lies. You know, I told a lie, but it was to save my coworker an embarrassment. And then if I were to ask you what sins Scripture tells us we commit and what, scriptures, what sins Scripture warns us against committing, you'd say, well, lies and, and anger. And if I said, well, like, for instance, anger, what does it actually say about anger? And you'd say, well, it says be angry and sin not. I'd say, okay, what else does it say about angry? And you'd say, well, let's see. Um, if I said to you, what is anger against somebody else? I doubt if any of you would immediately think, well, it's murder. Because it doesn't seem like anger's murder, you know? Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, if you're angry with your brother and call him a fool, you've murdered him. And every time I read that, I'm an angry man. And I think to myself, well, come on, that's hyperbolic, you know, that's an exaggeration. So I'm willing to call Jesus a liar to avoid thinking carefully about my anger and what it actually is. I have a relative who will go unnamed, who from the time he or she, or it, was very young, has had a habit of saying, I'd like to kill him. And I've never stopped listening to that and thinking, my word, he's a monster. Oh, I gave it away. <laughs> but then you stop and think, how different really is that from me? I may not say, I'd like to kill him. But Jesus says that if we're angry against somebody and if we call him a fool, that we are murderers. So now if I were to ask you, are you a murderer, you'd say, well, I guess I have to admit I'm a murderer, right? But I have never killed anybody. So then if I said to you, well, what sins does Scripture warn against again and again and again and again? And you'd say, well, idolatry. And every man's an idolater. And I say, okay, what else? And you say, well, gossip. I say, okay, what else? You say, well, sexual immorality. I mean, Scripture's filled with warnings against sexual immorality. I'd say, so, like in this church, do we have sexual immorality? Well, I mean, yeah, many people here have, have, have done that. And immediately goes past tense, you know, have done. Well, what about right now? Well, I suppose there are some people that, yeah, I mean... Yeah, there are some single people who are, like, engaged, and that's probably a big temptation, you know. 
here's my point. My point is that as Christians in a church, in other words, take this sample, us, we have a very resistant way of thinking and way of feeling in our hearts against sin so that we're always trying to deal with the sins that everybody will admit to and that any idiot knows we do. If we're pushed, we'll admit to a little larger sphere, but still proper social sins. If we're pushed, we'll admit to a little larger sphere. But here's my problem. Ever since I was a little kid, and my parents would read the Bible to me, and then when I started reading the Bible myself, and then when I took a course in the prophets at Columbia Bible College, what I've learned is that Scripture is filled with warnings against a particular sin that I never see anywhere. And the sin is the shedding of the blood of innocence. And you know me long enough now, most of you, to know that when I read something in the Bible, I'm always trying to figure out how I am trying to escape it. Me. You know, so if I read the Bible saying, you know, if you call a brother a fool, you've murdered him, I don't think, well, you know, I'm not a murderer. And and when I say fool, I don't really mean fool. You know, I try to think... I must be a murderer, all right? And I want you to do the same. Every time you read a scripture text that seems to have no application to you, I want you automatically to think, I'm blind, rather than that the Bible's dumb or inapplicable. It's this basic orientation we have to scripture to think it is very, very, very helpful. And that when God testifies about His Word, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword ever able to divide between joint and marrow, that He must mean that it's able to open us up, to slit us up the sternum in a way that's better than any surgeon. And that it's able to pull out of us everything that even an x-ray can't show. This is the Christian's approach to the Word of God. The Christian doesn't approach the Word of God as being a book that's history lessons and parables and helpful thoughts for the week. The Christian approaches the Word of God as a sword, as a hammer, as a fire. The Christian approaches the Word of God as the Word of the Spirit of God who is able to see into the innermost recesses of our hearts. The same God who says... The same God who says that there's no place that we can flee from His Spirit, that if we go down into the deepest trench of the Pacific Ocean, He is there and He sees us. That we can't hide from Him. That nothing in the deepest part of our conscience can be hidden from Him. And so if the Bible says, constantly warns us, constantly has accounts of people murdering and of the shedding of innocent blood, We should think, that's me, now how? Not, how could that be me, but that's me, now how? All right? And that when the Bible gives us accounts of God's people shedding the blood of innocence, again, our natural reaction should be, that's me, now how? Does this make sense, brothers and sisters? So how exactly is it that you and I shed the blood of innocence? How did, 
how do I do that? How do you do that? Well, let me first make the case from Scripture that this is something that's warned against constantly. Because if it's warned against constantly, it must be that God knows you and me better than you know yourself and I know myself, right? If God's warning against it and showing examples of it all through Scripture, it's probable that you and I and our society has not evolved... All right, to the point where no longer are we guilty of that sin, but rather we've devolved to the point where we no longer can even see it. All right, now let's start. Let's start with Genesis chapter 9. Well, no, let's not start with Genesis 9. Let's start with Genesis 4. Genesis 4, verse 3. So it came about in the course of time. Adam had sex with his wife, relations with his wife Eve. She conceived, gave birth to Cain. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel, his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So the first children... A brother killed a brother. Now, if you have brothers, is there one of you here who is prepared to say that he does not understand killing a brother? Not me. I remember when my brother had a fork in his hand, and the only thing that kept that fork from being put in my chest was me holding his arm so he couldn't do it. And you women think men are awful. Now, some of you have been blessed with having families of women, being the only boy in your family. So Lucas would never kill his brother, right? Because Lucas was raised by the fairer sex. But how about you crumb boys? I can remember talking to your father about how he was going to keep certain of you from killing each other. I can remember a time when I heard about one of you that I think would have killed his father. Not you guys, but one of them whose name will remain unmentioned. How about you, David? You've told me stories about you and your brothers. Is there a man here who has brothers who couldn't imagine killing his brothers or his brothers killing him? Any of you? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so here we have Cain and Abel. Now, Leviticus 20. Moses is speaking to God's people, not pagans, but to God's people. And this is what Moses says to the people of God. He's giving them warnings from God. Oh, wait, I didn't do it. Genesis 9. In Genesis 9, right after Noah gets off the boat, the ark, and God's setting up the world again with human beings, God says to Noah... 
All right. Verse 4. Only you shall not eat flesh with his life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your life blood from every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. So he told both Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He told Noah, to be fruitful and multiply, and he told him, do not shed the blood of man, whether a beast does it or a man does it. I will require of the animal or the man the blood of man, because my image is in man. And so, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, flip over to Leviticus 20. And there we see Moses giving instructions to God's people. All right. And here is what Moses says to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Mind you, these aren't the Canaanites. This isn't like Hollywood. This isn't Las Vegas. This isn't, you know, like India and Hindus. This is Wheaton. This is Church of the Good Shepherd. And this is their pastor saying this to them. He says, any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel. In other words, any of God's people, anybody who's not part of God's people but happens to be hanging out with God's people, sojourning, all right, in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Moloch. Now, what, how do you give an offspring to Moloch? Well, Moloch was a pagan god at the time whose cult, in other words, the way you worship Moloch, was you took your children and you burned them as a sacrifice to Moloch. So God is saying to his people, what? Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Moloch so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. So in other words, God forbid his people to sacrifice their children on the altar of the gods of their day. Now, so far, it's a little uncomfortable, but it gets really uncomfortable next. Keep reading. Look what happens next. Then he says, If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man, in other words, Monkey, see no evil, hear no evil, do no evil. I don't know what's going on. I didn't go in Planned Parenthood. I, I just, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm clean. I don't, I mean, I don't know anybody that's giving their children to Moloch. Well, yeah, but what about up there on the hill? Why well, stay away from the hills. I don't know what's going on up there on the hills. Let the pagans kill their children. That's what pagans do. Okay. He says, if the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family. So in other words, God's saying, I'll treat the one who acts like he doesn't see precisely the way I treat the one that actually does it. Do you understand this? To God, he sees the solidarity between those 
who act like nothing's at stake, and those who kill their unborn children, their preborn children, their postborn children. To God, there's no distinction between those who help to cover up a sin and those who commit the sin themselves. To those who say, I don't see it. You know, the Pollyannas. I just like to have good thoughts about people. I don't like to look at the negative, you know. I like to think of what people are possible, what they can do. I like to think about human potential. I think that every person is a rose just waiting to blossom. You know, I like to think of myself as someone who has positive thoughts about people. It doesn't look at the negative. I mean, there's a lot of negative in this world to see. And if you start looking at the negative, well, then what's going to happen? You know, then it's like depressing. You know, I don't know what they do up there on the hills. I don't know about those temples. I don't know about the high places. I don't know about Moloch. Moloch? Who's Moloch? You know, I like to be a friend. In fact, I believe in friendship evangelism. You know, I believe in contextualization. I believe in massaging the egos of people who are getting their undergraduate and graduate degrees, especially if they're from the Ivy League. I mean, how is it going to help somebody to have me bring up Moloch and the high places and the death of children? They know what they've done. I don't have to tell them. In God's time, in God's way, He'll bring them to a knowledge of what they need to repent. It's my job to love them. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch so as not to put him to death... Then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Moloch. You see, to God, there's great salt. Remember Lech Walesa, you know, and the the breaking up of the, the, the Iron Curtain. You know, solidarity. There's great solidarity between those of us who play monkey, see no evil, hear no evil, do no evil, and those who do evil and see evil who kill their children. In other words, God says the people who deny that they know what's going on and the people who do what's going on, I will treat in the same way. Okay? And what are we talking about? We're talking about the bloodshed of innocence. Do you want to be treated in the same way as someone who kills a little child? Do you want, by God, to be treated in the same way as somebody who kills a little child? Do you want to be treated in the same way as someone who kills a little child? Do you tremble to think of standing before God with that blood on your hands? But we don't. We don't. You and I cultivate ignorance about this bloodshed in our land. Our mothers and our fathers cultivate ignorance. We drive by Planned Parenthood and we drive by the abortuary, and we drive by our relatives at family reunions denying what we know good and well is true of them. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
There's absolutely no way a country can be as infertile as our country is and as our own families are without there being a lot of babies whose blood has been shed by our relatives. Now, at this point, you say to me, oh, come on. It's not really that bad. You're a calamity, Jane. We could use a little more Pollyanna from you. I say, okay, how bad is it? Because every time I hear people wanting to be dismissive about the bloodshed of unborn children in our country, I wonder what they know. Because certainly knowledge should be a foundation from which we take positions. So let me ask you this question. Planned Parenthood, you know, is the major provider of the murder of children. It's the average cost is four to six hundred to kill your child. You can go give them the money, they'll kill your child. All right, this is what Planned Parenthood is. And I think last year their 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 their, their total uh, money that went through them was about a billion dollars, and they had a a profit of something like I think ten percent, a hundred million, if I remember correctly. Did any of you? Uh, do any of you follow the financial statements of, uh, of, of Apple Computer? Do any of you follow the financial statements of Ford? How about your mutual fund? Could any of you tell me how much you've lost this last week in the stock market? Or this last month? Can any of you tell me what your balance is in your IRA? Any of you? Yeah, you can. But how many of you can tell me what the profit in the killing of unborn children is in this country? Why do you know the one, but you don't know the other? You see, we cultivate ignorance about bloodshed in our country. Now, here's the deal. Planned Parenthood years ago started an organization called the Guttmacher Institute, named after Alan Guttmacher, as a method of doing uh, first-class scientific research on... uh, Fertility, sterilization, abortion, uh, contraception, um, issues surrounding human reproduction. And back in 1992, the Alan Guttmacher Institute issued uh, a study where they estimated the prevalence rate of abortion in America. And at that time, they estimated that the prevalence rate in our country was about 42%. Now, what is a prevalence rate, and what does it mean? Well, what it means is those people who do the most number of abortions in our country and have the best statistics on everything related to contraception, reproduction, and abortion, such good statistics that National Right to Life uses the Guttmacher's statistics. All right? They estimate that if you take 100 women of childbearing age between the age of 15 and 44, and there are 100 of them, let's say there are 100 of them in this church, that of that 100, 42 of them have killed their unborn child. 42 of them. Okay? Now, you'll say to me, well, all right, but... You know, in a Bible-believing church, we don't believe in abortion. And so, you know, certainly we don't have that number of, uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, of child murders in this church. I say, okay, what do you want to do? You want to cut in half. 
Let's cut it in half. Let's say that in the Christian church, the evangelical church in America, we have half the prevalence of just any group of 100 women of childbearing age in society. We have half. Now, on divorce, we don't have half. You know that. And when it comes to fornication, we don't have half. You know that, right? And when it comes to uh, all forms of, of theft and all kinds of sins, you know our rate isn't half. When it comes to watching and looking at pornography, you know our rates aren't half, right? But for the sake of argument, let's say that we have half the prevalence rate of society at large when it comes to killing our unborn children. That means if we have 100 women of childbearing age in this room, and our prevalence is half, we're about 20 out of every 100 women in this church who have killed their unborn child. 20 husbands who have made their wives kill their unborn child. 20 fathers who have told their daughter to cover up her shame of fornication by killing his grandchild in this church. And we have pastors all over the country who not only don't preach about abortion, but actually say it's a principle that they think preachers shouldn't preach about abortion. Now, why would that be? Well, you have two choices when it comes to God. One is that God is small and that God cannot understand human sin and wickedness and that his son's blood was not given for real sinners, but only for righteous sinners. You have half of the church saying that Jesus came to save the righteous, not the sinners. And you have the other half of the church that says, no, he came to save sinners, not the righteous. Well, you understand this half of the church would say, we don't have abortion in our church. Only the pagans kill their children. We don't have fornication. No, in, in, in my premarital counseling, I, I don't ask them whether or not they're having sex with each other. We don't do that in the church. And if I see somebody that has no interest in women, I don't ask him if he's struggling with same-sex intimacy issues. Because in the church, we don't have that. And why would I ever question a couple whether or not they've killed an unborn child? I mean... We don't have that in the church, right? And so here's the righteous church, and they don't need Jesus. They have Jesus, but they're righteous. And then here's the half that says, you know, I heard that my sister, who's 44, got pregnant, but then I never heard anything more about it. And I know that the incidence of disabilities and genetic defects are very high in women that get pregnant after the age of 40. And I wonder, do you think she and her husband killed their child? But of course, this church won't ask the question, you know, because Christians don't do that. But this person has a heart that what? 
A heart that's owned by Jesus, a heart that says, if I got pregnant after the age of 40 and I knew the possibility of having a genetically defective child, I think I'd be tempted to kill my child. And then we think, I'll bet that my brother and his wife were tempted. In fact, I wonder whether they didn't do it. So who is Jesus? Does he come for the righteous or does he come for sinners? Who are those 20 women? Who are they? And you say, well, let's have a little privacy in church. We don't all need to know what everybody else is doing. And I say, you know, let's not have a little privacy. Let's have a lot of privacy. I'll tell you what. I won't confess being a gossip and having greed. And I won't confess jumping the gun at the stop sign. I won't tell you that I honked the horn at the roundabout. And I'll wear a tie next week. And if you come to me for pastoral counseling, I'll never probe. And if you're a salesman, I'll never ask what you watch on your television set. Now, does that sound like a church that we can live in? You know, wouldn't that be nice? You know, fetch me the comfy chair. You know, we could all just have a potluck and we could tell Jesus that he was an idiot for coming for sinners, that he should have come for the righteous. And it's just a big conspiracy. And we'll all say we voted for Barack Obama because he's really pro-life. And we'll all say that abortion isn't really murder and there isn't really blood because people don't really exist until they have the ability to have large brains and to talk in restaurants like I have. To think conceptually, to be able to express themselves, to have intimacy, that personhood and life are bound together and that personhood and, and, and you know, what we can say is, well, okay, abortions in the second and third trimester, the shedding of the blood of innocent, but not the first trimester, because the first trimester, the child doesn't even look like a person. I mean, if you were to pull it out of its mother's womb and look at it, I mean, it doesn't even look like a person. Yeah, yeah it might have a heartbeat, but I mean, it's not a person. And after all, which of us, you know, the society and the promotion of to, to prevent the cruelty to animals, you know, they're not going around trying to get people not to step on spiders. You know, they're concerned about mammals that actually have some resemblance to me. That's who they're primarily concerned about, you know. Or the eggs of animals that are attractive and an unborn child in the earliest days of its life is not attractive at all there's no resemblance to anything that you and I experience as human life any person that you and I have ever been intimate with to talk about that life in the same way that you talk about the life of a living breathing human being is just it, it, it's just really imbalanced and it's just it's, it's not, it just doesn't, you know, I don't, you know, my heart and my mind don't really resonate with that. And, you know, I'm the judge of all things. And so we go to Genesis and we find that the first brothers, one murdered the other. We go to Genesis 9, we see God warning against it. We go to Leviticus 20 and we see that it was the constant habit of the people of God to turn away to killing their children. 
But today, we have all these ways of distancing ourselves from that. This doesn't go on in our church, and it's not my mother, and, and I'd never do it, and, and it doesn't even look like a baby. You know, it's just, you know, I can't handle it, you know? I can't handle it. I can't be responsible for everything. There's enough evil in the world. Can't we talk about what's positive? And I say, yes, let's talk about the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from all sin. Is that positive enough for you? And you say, well, I didn't mean that. I meant positive things like roses and nurseries and pink. I say to you, listen, you want to talk about your roses and your nursery and your pink? Do you know how much pink there would be in this world if God removed his hand restraining my sin? Do you know how much pink there would be in this world? It wouldn't be pink, it would be red. You want to know what pink is when God stops restraining us? It's Rwanda. It's 700 to 950,000 deaths. The second the top ruler of that country turned away from the rule of law and said, Have at him! And within three months, 700 to 950,000 of them had killed their brothers, their sisters, their children, and the pastors had killed their people with machetes. Not guns. Hack, hack, hack. That's me. And you go, you know, there was a reason I didn't come to this church. People, this is you. You sweet women. This is you in the privacy of your bathroom. You get pregnant and you don't want to admit it. You don't want a defective child. You don't want to have to tell your parents that you were intimate when you were raised from the cradle to honor Jesus Christ. In a heartbeat, you will kill your child. And if there's a way to kill your child early enough so you don't have to have any pangs of conscience and it all happens in a bathroom, you'll do it. And it is the shedding of the blood of innocence. It is killing. And it makes not a whit whether or not you have a conscience about it. It is a child bearing the image of God. And you'll take his life to escape shame. You know who the really honorable, the heroic women are in Christian schools and Christian homeschools today? They're women that are pregnant out of wedlock. All they have to do is take the little pills and the baby's gone. And their dad will be relieved, and their mother will be relieved, and the, the principal of their school will be relieved, and the elders of the church will be Everybody will be relieved if they just kill their unborn child. And if instead they say, I fear God, and I will not compound one sin with the other, and their belly begins to swell, and there's no man, she is a heroine. God bless her. You say, how could you say God bless a fornicator? I say, hey, how many of you want to cast the first stone? I haven't noticed a lack of fornicators in the church. And so we have Cain and Abel, and we have Leviticus 20 in the warning, 
And then when we go to the Old Testament, here's what we have. We have this warning given in Jeremiah chapter 20, 32. Because of the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them, teaching them again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnon to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch. God's people. Jeremiah, weeping prophet. Why was he weeping? He was weeping because the people of God were sacrificing their children. They were burning their children to death. And then God says through his prophet, their sons and daughters they made to pass through the fire to Moloch, which, what does God say next? Anybody here know what God says next? He says, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. And so we see in the Old Testament, and then we look and we see that when Pharaoh was concerned about the Hebrews and when the Egyptians were concerned that the Hebrews were going to overwhelm them, what did they do? What they did was first they tried to limit the growth of the nation, the fertility of the nation. When that didn't work, eventually they said to the midwives, kill the boy babies and the midwives wouldn't do it because they feared God and then it was just open season on the Israelite babies they were to die why? because the rich people didn't want the poor people reproducing and so this week our new president President Obama has reversed the Mexico City policy where President Bush said no American aid is going to go to organizations that trade on abortion. And President Obama has said American aid will now go to organizations that do trade on abortion. And this is you and this is me. It's not President Obama. It's my tax dollars and it's your tax dollars. This is our foreign policy. And why is it our foreign policy? It's our foreign policy because it's what we do to our children in this country. It's what you and I do to our children. You say, oh, come on, we don't do it. And I say, prevalence rate, you want to say half the country in this church? How about a quarter? If it's a quarter, it's still ten out of every hundred of our women. And furthermore, what does it matter what our prevalence rate is compared to the world? These are your seatmates at the lecture hall. These are the people in the dorms next to you. These are your mother, your father, your brother, your sister-in-law. These are the people you work with. 
And the question for Christians today is, do we love them? Now, if we don't love them, then we'll never think about who's had an abortion because we don't want to talk to them about Jesus Christ and his blood and his forgiveness and his mercy. But if we believe in the mercy of Jesus Christ, then everywhere we go, we're going to see people who have killed their unborn children. And we're going to believe that it's precisely there that souls are regenerated and become believers in Jesus Christ. Because the burden of their sin is such that they can't bear it. And we believe... We believe in the power of the blood of Christ to turn us away from sexual immorality and to turn us away from the murder of little children and to turn us away from anger. And we don't focus on anger because it's clean. We think, you know, the church should be a place where people are safe from sexual molestation when they're little children. And so the church is the place that has the faith to discipline men that are predators against their children. Because I know my heart. And I know I could molest my children. And I think I want to protect the children. Not because we look at the the molesting person and we say, Oh, what an awful man. I could never do that. Out with him. But because we say, There but for the grace of God go I. And we look at the woman who's 44 and just got pregnant and we think, I'll bet she's tempted to kill her little child. And we think, I'm going to invite her over for dinner and I'm going to talk to her about what a gift the child is. And I'm going to find a way to reassure her that if God does give her a defective child, that it's not defective in God's eyes. Because God says, who made the eyes that see and the eyes that are blind? Wasn't it not I, the Lord? And I remember what a gift Leah used to be. When she was more cogent, I remember this little boy who had Down syndrome. And what a blessing he was to his siblings and his parents. And we begin to see murder and bloodshed and Moloch. And we begin to see everywhere around us who we are. And we begin to live by faith because we know that's why Jesus gave his life. We know that if the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The shedding of blood must be one of the sins that the blood of Christ was given for. And we begin to think, where is it? It must be here. And then we think, oh, yeah, there are those people down at Planned Parenthood, and they pick it every week. I think I'll go down and just see what it feels like. I tell you, people. We had a couple that wrote me an email this week saying, we're not going to come back to Church of the Good Shepherd. We thank you for all of your work. We, you know, express our condolences or kindness or love or affection or something to you. And, but, but we're moving on. And I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write them back and say, before you go, <laughs> you have to put yourself in my twisted mind. Before you go, do one thing for me. 
You know, would you go down to Planned Parenthood just one day, just for a few minutes? And would you stand there and offer to help the women who are going in to kill their unborn children? Just for a few minutes. And then when you've done that, go ahead and leave. Now, why would I say that? So I sent him an email offering. I said, I'll come down there and I'll be with you if you'd like. Why would I do that? I do that because I think that when we open our eyes to see the sins for which Christ died, when we see them and cultivate the ability to see them, then the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ explodes. Then we begin to be forgiving. Then we begin to be humble. Then we begin to be merciful. Then we begin to be graceful. Then we begin to be fully integrated. I mean, think of how the world uses these words. The world doesn't know anything about integration of races or of a human psyche. You know, knows nothing about it. But let me tell you, when you think, I could have killed my child and it's only a miracle I didn't do it. I could have told my daughter to go have an abortion. I could have murdered with my own hands if I'd been in Rwanda. When we begin to see who we are, you, not me. I mean, you know this about me, right? But you. When we begin to see this, then the grace of God explodes. And so here these little infants are, and there is the way of the world. There's Herod, and this little child is a threat to him. So what does he do? He goes in and he slaughters the children. By ch- the, the estimates of church historians range between 14,000, 8,000, and 15. We don't know how many there were, but they all died. But how many sermons have you heard on this episode that God thought it was worthwhile to put in his work? How many sermons have you heard on this text? The slaughter of the innocents. And this is who we are today. If you trace back the history of the United States of America, you'll find that for at least 50 to 70 years, our foreign aid has been tied to erasing the fertility of the southern hemisphere. That's who we are as a nation. And it's because that's who we are as a people. And do you know what's going on today? I'm going to put up a blog post soon. I've been working on it for 50 to 100 hours. What I've discovered is the decline in the abortion rate of this country and around the world is largely the product of abortion increasingly moving from medical abortion or from surgical abortion to medical abortion. In other words, from steel to chemicals. And that one of the largest places of increase in abortion rate in the world is actually in the first few days what are called ECPs. And what they are is they're morning after drugs. And hard estimates of a Princeton professor are that this is at least half the decline in abortion numerically is these ECPs. What do ECPs do? ECPs take a human being bearing the image of God and kill it at such an early time that you can't even recognize that it's a human being. 
They're getting so good at killing so early that a woman can be in the privacy of her own bathroom and not have a pang of conscience about it because it's just simply a period. It's a period. That's it. And conveniently, the American College of OB-GYNs, that's not what it was called then, but it's what it is now, back in about 63 changed the definition of pregnancy. So that pregnancy went from being the moment at which a fertilized ovum existed. In other words, when a sperm fertilized an ovum, that was the definition of pregnancy. They changed it in 63. So now it's the moment at which a fertilized ovum implants itself on the wall of the uterus. And so ECPs come in. They take a human being made in the image of God, not yet bonded to the wall of the uterus, and they kill it. And it goes out, and the woman has not a pang of conscience. They estimate somewhere between 50 and 100,000 little ones are killed every year in America already, and it's growing exponentially. Now, let me ask you a question. Did you know that? You didn't know that. Do you know I called the man that's the head of research for National Right to Life, and I asked him. I said, are you keeping track of those abortions? Are they in your statistics of abortions in America today? He said, no. And so he got a little aggressive. I said, why not? You know this is where all abortions are going to move. And he said, well, we don't keep track of that. I said, I know. Why not? And he said, because we don't know that an abortion has occurred. But you know a Princeton professor who's a liberal and who thinks ECPs are good, he can tell you how many abortions there are every year because he's committed to knowing. Why is the church against knowing about those abortions? You know why? Because we're all using birth control. That's why. That's the reason. None of us want to focus in the early days because then we have to look at our faith when it comes to God saying, be fruitful and multiply. We have to look at our faith when we're 41, 42, 43, 44, and we get pregnant. We have to look at our faith when our daughter gets pregnant. We could just slip her a little ECP. First 102 hours of pregnancy, they're effective. So we could wait a day. We could wait two days. We could wait three days. And so these little children that Herod slaughters, they're visible. They're born. They're at their mother's breast, and the sword comes, and they die. And then the third trimester, and we can look at Obama and say, well, he even blames newborn babies in third trimester, you know? Late-term abortions, you know? And then we can say, well, second trimester aren't good, but there's almost nobody in our country who is willing to look at first trimester and ECPs. And the reason is, as I said at the beginning of this sermon... If I ask you to confess your sins to me, you'll start with little white lies, and then you may move to getting angry at the roundabout. And if I say about bloodshed, you may say, well, I get mad at people, and the Bible tells me that if I call somebody a fool, I'm a murderer. So I guess hypothetically I am, although it doesn't seem like I am. And then I say, well, what about bloodshed in your family or in this church? Well, I suppose there are probably a couple of women who have had abortions, I say, what about you? What about you? People, there was a woman that came to Jesus and washed his feet with her hair. Do you remember that? 
she was crying. And she took perfume and she took her tears and she washed Jesus' feet. Do you remember that? He was in the, th- the home of Simon, the Pharisee. And she was known to be a wicked woman. And Simon sat there and judged her and judged Jesus. And he said about Jesus, he said, if Jesus knew what kind of a woman that was, he would not allow her to make this public uh, spectacle. And Jesus said, Simon, when I came to your home, you didn't wash my feet. In other words, Simon, you didn't do anything that was in any way kind, let alone loving to me. But look at this woman. He said, Simon, which person loves more? The person that has been given tons and tons of forgiveness or the person that's been given very little forgiveness? And he says, well, I suppose the person that's been given tons of forgiveness. And he says, you know, basically Jesus says, what about this woman? How much does she love me? You know that abortions were all over the place in the ancient Roman Empire. All over the place. And we all like to think that the burden of her guilt was sexual immorality. You know what I bet? I bet she'd killed her unborn children. And do you know something? That woman was honored by Jesus Christ. Do you know who I preach for this morning? I preach for those in our midst who have confessed to killing their unborn child because they're my heroes. Why? Because when we confess the most awful, heinous sins that we are all guilty of, then the name of Jesus Christ is glorified. Because then we see why without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. This is a church where that woman is honored. And if anybody dares to say he should not let her do that because of the kind of woman she is, that man is disciplined in this church just as Jesus disciplined Simon. Let's pray.